Thompson and Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. All right, good Tuesday, I think. I don't know what's going to be a good Tuesday. I was going to talk about Chattanooga, and you know how I get when I talk about Chattanooga. And uh, I guess I can still talk about Chattanooga. It's just there's, there's no game. So I don't know if I'll talk about Chattanooga. I can talk about a great win, ETSU men's basketball picked up on Saturday and a big win for ETSU women's basketball on Sunday. We'll talk about those games uh, and then we'll talk stock report in the Southern Conference. We will then talk about bold predictions where it was a, a decent week for both of us. Could have been better. I agree. No, I got hosed on one, but that's okay. Uh, and, of course, it was brilliant in another one, like I always am. That's, if there's one word to describe me, is brilliant. I can't wait to talk about this because you somehow seem to get the close ones, and I always, every single time, mm-hmm. fall a point short, because you're the side a couple kick. seconds that's short. A, when you get a name on the byline, that's what that's what happens. That's okay. I'm pretty sure I'm the one that named the show. It's why it I is. put myself in this position. I, <laughs> it I don't Remember how anti yeah, I was? On the, I, was, it, I, yeah. was I was. I was. I don't know. So people think that Jay Sandoz has a massive ego. You're right sometimes, but it is not as much as it would reflect on this show. It's not as much as we play it up on this no. show. That's for sure. Uh, it's still there. Don't be confused. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get the, uh, going the other way, but let's talk a little bit about uh, what was not a big ego, and that was the Buck Sharon, the basketball enough to where three players, and really Sloan was close, uh, nine points. I guess as close as you can be without without having double figures. But it started with again Ladarius Brewer in foul trouble. I thought that was the the story early in the game was he went foul trouble. Who was going to step up at Western Carolina? It took a while for somebody to step up. In this contest, it did not. Damari Monsanto was the man that stopped, uh, stepped up, hit four shots of uh, beyond the arc in the first half, had 12 points, and certainly got things kind of cranking. He finished with 22 points, 18 for the week. I think uh, when he 17 points and right around 12 rebounds yes. for the week, which is just unbelievable in a three-game stretch. But Damari Monsanto was ridiculous. Silas Adeke was as good as he's looked, I think. Um, 14 points, 9 rebounds. Again, what he was able to do defensively, I think, again, just you, you look at he's Noah Gurley in two games, 13 points. And I know he had 13 in the one game, but, I mean, still what he was able to get Noah Gurley kind of out of his rhythm, and, and Gurley really tried to force the issue a lot too late. And there was a couple switches, so unlike last time where Adeke was really on Gurley the whole time, and there were a couple switches where Gurley got baskets over other people, but still I think if you look at when Adeke was on him, and I think whenever um, he was trying to drive to the hoop, I brought this up a couple times during the radio, Adeke, because he weighs about 40 pounds more, was able to really force him out of the middle of the lane and certainly made Gurley look uncomfortable. But for Furman, the story today was sort of the opposite. Jalen Slauson coming off an 18-14 and 14 career day, and he doesn't scratch. So that's twice in two games versus ETSU. They've had a starter that we've talked about they rely heavily on that wasn't able to score the basketball. Much bigger when you don't have essentially anything off the bench. Yeah. And that's what it really looked like. Garrett Heen, I don't think, did much. Uh, he was kind of a bystander when I watched him. Jalen Pugh, you know, Anderson played a little bit more. Foster was out there a pretty decent amount. I, I wasn't particularly impressed with pretty much any of them. I, I'm actually shocked that Joe Anderson's getting 21 minutes and Jalen Pugh's getting two minutes. That was it was shocking. That is the right word. Uh, and and it hasn't seen. And I know Pugh was out with a hand injury, but since it got kind of worked back in, he was getting more minutes. So I don't know what I don't know what Pugh has done. Um, I think Pugh's a much better defender um, than Anderson. And I don't 
thing. Well, Pugh didn't even take a shot. Pugh only played two minutes. Gosh, I thought it was more. He played two minutes. Anderson played 21 minutes. So, I I don't know. Bob Ritchie knows his team better than I do, clearly. So, I, I, maybe I don't need to uh, look too much into that particular one case because I do believe Pugh is out playing Anderson on the season. But still, I was kind of curious about that. And then for Clay Mounts, uh, I think I heard you say the Mounts back or, or whatever it was. That, that was, was uh, that was Bruce. I uh, That was solid. Mounts shows off the bounce on the – Two slams? Oh, two yeah, slams. two of them. But, oh. Yeah, the mounts back was there. I <laughs> stopped in my tracks dead by Bruce Trayvark when he said that, and I had to start over with whatever I was saying. Yeah, it was it was solid. He dropped it on me in the post game too, and I was like, yeah, that was great. But I thought, you know, Clay Mount, I think he's, he he is going – Yes, he and he, he is going to, go. to be missed. I mean, yeah. coming off his worst performance as when he's got – I don't want to look at his freshman days where he got in like four minutes, like – being a starter with 30-some minutes the last couple of years, clearly the VMI game was an outlier for him. He was able to, to bounce back. Mike Bothwell, again, 32-17, and 17, two matchups against the Bucks. Hard to argue what he was doing. It was interesting to see Slauson uh, not score. Ladarius Brewer in the second half picked up. So, anyways, we kind of yada yada a lot of things, and, and I rambled to start there. But, overall, the defensive performance ETSU was able to put on, holding firm into 62 points, nine below their – previous least amount scored uh, in a game 16 point difference from the first meeting I think clearly number one it shows that Furman still has some struggles on the road they clearly and a lot of teams are I'm not picking off a lot of teams play better at home shoot better at home all the numbers are better at home but Furman's had its struggles this season on the road but the first couple you're going well Cincinnati went through it right you're kind of kind of chuckling at those now in league play though two big losses VMI ETSU back to back they're three and five on the road now, and when they shoot above fifty percent, they are undefeated. When they shoot below it, they are winless. And I think that you knew coming into this game that down low is going to be a position when it comes to actual post ups, out muscling firm, and that Silas Adeke was going to be able to take advantage of. There's only one statistic that really stands out against Furman. You look up and down all of the league statistics, and we can go over them one by one. But I'll just go ahead and summarize it by saying. They're number one in like 10 or 12 league statistics. Uh, steals, assists, uh, you know, turnover margin, assist to turnover ratio. Obviously, the scoring offense is tremendous and would be um, right at the top of the league if it's not for Citadel, the style of basketball that they play. Scoring margin, number one, field goal percentage, so on and so forth. Rebounding margin is the one area where they are not at the top of the league. And in fact, they're all the way at bottom three. You know, you have to look all the way down the league with. Um, the likes of some other teams that you would expect to be down there. You know, the Chattanoogas, the Western Carolinas, uh, you know, Chat struggling since conference play started. Western, obviously, still without a win in the Southern Conference this year. But then Furman, you know, yeah, still plus 1.7. And the Southern Conference is an extremely balanced league. We know that. But you knew with that statistic and the fact that they're, like, kind of middle of the league in blocks and just looking at their profile in terms of who they put out there and that they don't have that one big guy that can really solidify the middle. I'd even say VMI, you know, with the Jake Stevens, 6'10", 260, right? Like a guy that can, if he is challenged on the defensive end, can muscle up and push you out of the paint. But Furman doesn't really have that guy. And so you saw the box plus eight on the glass and then Silas Adeke, 14 and nine. I thought that he looked, firstly, I was inc- incredibly encouraged that they gave him as many looks in the post as they did, because a lot of times you see that at the beginning of halves with the Bucks. You know, Very first possession, that's it. Every single time, it seems like, and second half as well. 
and then they don't go back to it much. And I don't blame them because the wings are tremendous on this team. I mean, look what Demari Monsanto, who is getting national shout-outs for, you know, what he's doing, not only being able to score the basketball, but I think he's got now 35 rebounds in the last three games. Um, he's putting up massive stat lines. He has a Ladarius Brewer. I, I mean, that five – uh, five-point stretch, what, over 11 seconds where he had the three that was not an easy shot, by the way. I mean, he was hitting some pretty absurd threes, and they were dead center of the cup. And then the big two-handed dunk, I have no idea what was Jalen Slauson. Yeah. I have no idea uh, what Slauson's doing. I mean, I guess he threw the pass, and maybe he was trying to make amends, but there was no way he was going to catch him. No. It was it was one of those plays where it was like – I don't want to say Slauson was doing anything dangerous, but the way that Ladarius got hit because he was so far behind. Oh, yeah. You went the hell under the rim. I mean, that could right. be a serious yeah, That was injury. odd. And, again, I don't. I, I certainly watched that play over. It didn't appear Slauson was coming in recklessly or anything. It was just so late, and then Ladarius, uh, you know, goes and at least recovers, hits the free throw, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's ball game at that point. But I'm thinking Slauson, because he made the pass, was like, oh, I got to You know, you want to make up for it, right? And at that point, I think you could feel – the deflation after the the three off the screen, turn around, follow away, whatever the heck that thing was, it was dead center of the cup. You kind of felt like, oh, boy. You, you know. probably thought that if he doesn't go and block that dunk, the game's completely over as opposed to being like 99% over. So you, you kind of get it, but it was a terrible play. Uh, you just don't go and try and make that against, especially an athlete the caliber of Ladarius Brewer in the open floor when you have that big of a deficit 10, 15 feet behind him as he was – reaching the free throw line. Um, but, yeah, down low, a decade really took advantage. Demario Monsanto is shooting the lights out. Um, and, again, the fact that he's being diligent enough to go and get rebounds as well is huge for this team right now. And Ladarius is Ladarius. Uh, defense showed up. First time Furman's been held below 70 the entire year, um, and it was 62. It's not like they scraped by. It was 62. And so ETSU is just showing that time and again they can win games in a certain way. And that way can fluctuate. It can be 86-78 over Western. It can be 92-81 to over VMI. Or it can be 59-48 against Western the second time. And then it can be 71-62 against, I'd say, the most polished offense in the league in Furman. Uh, and no rip on Citadel, but they're kind of that three-headed monster that is just going to play that style of play that does get well, and, up and down. And, and really, VMI – is pretty close, but just the way Parham's playing is on a different level. But as a team, all five starters, I think I, I would agree, Furman is by far most in sync uh, every single game in and game out this year. I know we're not going to give him as much credit as maybe some of the others, like we're talking about from that specific game of decade and Brewer, um, but and obviously Monsanto. But David Sloan, since he did not play against Western Carolina, kind of a so-so game as he worked his way back in against UNCG, trying to figure out his role. But the last four, 13 points, 18 points, 12 points, 9 points, and assists of five or more in each of those four games. I talked about last week, it was about a week ago, I think it was the VMI broadcast, with Bruce, what is ETSU going to do with David Sloan? It's kind of a conundrum, right? Because they were off for that period of time after the UNCG game, and you were still wondering, what is he going to be? What's his role going to evolve into? Or is he going to backslide, kind of get down on himself, like some things haven't worked his way? I'm sure the year in the first eight, nine games didn't exactly go the way that he had hoped it did and how ETSU would have hoped it was going to go for him also. But he has, credit to him, I think really stepped up, not only played his role, but accepted that he doesn't necessarily need to be the guy 
scoring the basketball. If he plays within the scope of the offense, and this is big props to Jason Shea as well, if he plays in the scope of the offense, if he is able to look around at his teammates and know that they're there to help him, not trying to hinder him by just once he passes, a shot's going up, it seems like they're playing more together, that connectivity is there, and he's really bought in to what Jason Shea wants him to do. I, I think the big thing, too, is knowing that you can have scoring punch off the bench, right? right? I mean, it's one thing Coach Shea, ever since he's been on NHSU staff, is they've prided themselves on, you know, their six-man can really score. And it doesn't seem like Sloan has taken that as a slight, an ego hit. You're not in the starting I mean, lineup, I, so you must, must be worse than everybody else. And I, I think it started with Sorrell Smith. I think the way he handled it first, I think, showed, all right, I'm, I'll just go here. And then we didn't see a difference when Ladarius Brewer didn't play but at, at Furman, and we saw Sloan go in, and then Sloan go right back to being the sixth man, you know. And so I, and I would even like to say on the assists, I can think of four plays off the top of my head where guys have not finished that would have given him assists. And so he actually has played better than even some of those stats I think have have shown. I I think he's he's done a nice job of knowing what's going on. And I think the team has done a nice job of figuring out, hey, this is how we need to win games. And, and you're starting to see the multi-guy in double figures now. Sorry, and when did that game turn on Saturday? For me, I think about one sequence. It's after the 30-second timeout from Jason Shea. Bucks were down three with like 15 minutes left. And then Sloan comes out and makes a t- couple of tough shots. The Bucks are ahead, and I believe they wouldn't trail again. I think that sparked the 13 nothing run. Yeah, it was 40-37, to 37, and then all of a sudden 50-40. to 40, And the one that started that was David Sloan. So uh, not to step on you, but mm. I think that really if I'm dissecting where things turned, obviously the timeout from Shea, but then David Sloan coming out and asserting himself in a way that he felt was necessary at the time. And, and Furman had a couple scoring droughts, one in the first half, one in the second half. And it was – field goal drought was like seven minutes at one point. They had a couple free throws, but like, they had like a seven-minute field goal drought. And they just didn't look at But same token, I kept talking about on the radio, again, not, not fully watching the entire game back to what you and Bruce were talking about, but you had a feeling there was a shot that if they just got a couple to go in, and all of a sudden, you know, the 10-point lead went to four quickly, you know, free tissue, because it was back-to-back threes. Uh, it was mounts from the left side, and I want to say it was Bothwell uh, slightly to the right of the top of the key. And it was bang, bang. All of a sudden, 10 went to four. And I talk about it because I felt like ETSU should have had a bigger lead because Furman couldn't score. ETSU was a big reason for that, but certainly Furman had some opportunities and didn't score. But offensively, the Bucks were in a little bit of a lull, too, and I thought, man, they should just be up more as opposed to what they are. And then Furman cut it to four, and ETSU immediately hit a three, got it seven, then got up, and then, of course, a, a few, I think it was two minutes later, then the, the dagger kind of came in from Ladarius Brewer, put the game away. Bucks free throws much better this game. You know they've had their struggles in league play. They're the worst free throwing uh, free throw shooting team in all of the Southern Conference, and so you're starting to get more games in. So it's starting to be relevant as opposed to where I was like, well, they just played a couple of games. Maybe it's not that big a deal. But you know you're six games in now, and you're the bottom of the league at free throw shooting. Let's transition because we're going to talk Chattanooga. I know you're excited too because you're going to gas them up to being the greatest thing since uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. And that was obviously going to completely undermine their entire base of what they operate on, and they were going to lose by 30. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a game don't on have Wednesday. A game. And not only is it not a game against Chattanooga, it's just not a game in general on Wednesday. Mercer and UNCG are playing as they kind of rescheduled, and ETSU unfortunately left out there. Um, 
still don't know really what the schedule is going to look like going forward. We can obviously talk Citadel on Saturday. That game is still on. Um, so on the Thursday or Friday show, we can go there. But uh, wanted to talk about your guy, Day-Day Dunkster. Because so Daydrian Hall. This is something that I think is very, at least to me, new. Not in the fact that the Bucks sign somebody. That happens all the time. But in the middle of a season where he's eligible right away, and what do we know about him? Uh, let's be honest, like not a lot, right? You can go and watch some tapes online and see kind of what his Like all recruiting like. videos, he's great. <laughs> exactly. Right? But, he's awesome. He's but, the greatest player to ever live. But yeah. Jason Shea was with you last night on the ETSU Radio Coaches Show, and so I wanted to hear some of his comments on Day-Day Dunkster, Day-Day Hall. He's eligible. We had a scholarship available. Decided we were going to reward it to, you know, uh, an incoming prospect. The rule had kind of changed from previously. Normally, it kind of had to go to somebody that was already on the roster and uh, a walk-on. But uh, we were able to, with this new rule and with COVID and the pandemic, to use the scholarship. And so now we have all 13. It gives us another uh, body out there. It's a free year. He gets a chance to practice and get stronger and learn. If and when he's ready to play, I'll put him out there. I'm not going to rush it. But if he can help us win one game, which Forbes used to say that, if he can help us win one game, then it's worth it. So the chance to uh, bring him on, a bo- on board right now is, uh, is exciting, and I think he's going to just help add to our team. So that's what kind of led to the signing of Day-Day. And we can debrief after these three bites from Coach Day because I think they all serve a certain purpose. What I am concerned about, and this is, I think, something that I maybe get too hyper-focused on, but Bucks are rolling, right? They've won five of six in the conference play, have a nice path to a Southern Conference regular season championship and one seed going into the Southern Conference tournament. I know I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but looking right now, uh, they're right there with a Wofford, with a UNCG. They're in great position. So – could bringing in a new piece, regardless of if he's going to play or not, are some guys maybe threatened that their minutes are going to be taken away? Um, how does Day-Day fit with the locker room chemistry? All of that, are, those are things that I think about um, outside of all of the other obvious things that you can discuss. But Coach Shea did also address that. We've got a good thing going. I don't want to disrupt what we have. I think we've got a good rotation going now, substitution patterns uh, are starting to be figured out. Guys are starting to figure out their roles. You know, so I want to minimize the disruption as much as possible, but it does give us an extra body in practice, so we're going to continue to keep having competitive practices and keep improving, keep learning as we have been. I think that's been huge as far as our success so far. He's already missed a lot. As I said, we've had 103 practices, so he's missed a lot compared to what our other guys are doing got to learn fast and furious he's going to be thrown to the wolves and we'll see what we can do so to me very positive that he is conscious of that and thinking about that and sharing that with us i think that's something that um the guys on the team need to hear as well and, and not thinking that he's just going to come in play right away work his way into the starting lineup it sounds like coach has realistic expectations for him the fact that you've missed over 100 practices um says a lot. I think the reason that this is going on the way it is is because of this year not counting, and we can talk about this in a second, but there's no risk, right? He comes in, he is, as Coach said, another body in practice. He doesn't lose eligibility, so if he can help you, why not? Um, Big name here that Coach Shea threw out in terms of who he reminds Coach Shea of, a obviously tremendous player for ETSU, 
over the last number of years and someone that's gone on to great success. A.J. Berryweather, he's that Swiss Army knife. He's got some versatility. He'll be able to defend multiple positions. He's a good athlete. He's got long arms, uh, brings some toughness. For his high school in Sulphur Springs, Texas, I think he's the all-time leader in steals for the high school. He's the all-time leader in assists and block shots. He, he just that type of guy brings some toughness. Offensively, he's going to slash and you know, hopefully get in there and get some offensive rebounds. You know, our offensive rebounding percentage was way higher uh, on Saturday's game compared to the, a week ago when we played Furman. But he's just a tremendous kid. And just got him on campus, and he's so thankful to be here. And I can work with that. And I think he's just going to soak up all the information and all the teaching and all the tips that we have. He'll be a really good player for us down the road. So a little bit more of a breakdown on Day Day's game and A.J. Merriweather. Not too shabby. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask him, and I just couldn't pull the trigger on, are we talking A.J. freshman year or A.J.? <laughs> because I think when fans hear that, I think it's hard because your last impression is what it is, right? If you said, you know, this guy reminds me of Pat Good. Well, what's the first thing you come to? The Western, right? It's the first thing. Rather, it's unfair. It's unfair. So, I, I like that he did go and say, okay, because of multiple things, because of this, because of energy, because of a a, a good kid, and got a chance to talk to him. You know, just I think, you know, he's interesting um, in the situation. Very blessed. That was the word he kept saying. The few seconds I got to talk to him, I'm just blessed for this opportunity. I had a chance to go. Coach, I don't think he ran the bike, but said, you know, his prep coach was obviously upset. But how do you? not let, you know, this right. kid, because it's going to hurt his team, but this is a great opportunity for the kid in the one year. And so I was able to tap into a couple of ETSU coaches to ask them about this, and it just so happened that both of those coaches, Will Bailey at South Carolina, who was here with Murray Bartow for many years, was able to get um, a situation where they brought in Trayvon Myant, who's a freshman, 6'9", 7'7", wingspan, 280 pounds, and then for Coach Forbes, he brought in Carter Witt, who was one of his first signees, and he brought him in as soon as December hit, six foot four freshman. So those schools are able to do it. They're taking advantage of the rule, and good to see the Bucks are doing that as well. Something to keep an eye on going. All right, we'll talk women's basketball recap right after this time. Out, San Osaki, Buccaneers Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Brightridge to match our vision to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on. Embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Sanderson, the sidekick, back with you as we talk ETSU women's basketball. They split a pair of games against UNCG over the weekend. And I'm going to throw just two numbers at you. Okay. And it's the difference in the game. Okay. The number two. Okay. And the number eight. You going to take a quick guess before I tell you? Ronnie Williams wears number two for ETSU women's basketball. Number eight. Kobe, RIP, I think that was a year ago today. It, it, it was, uh, but that was not it either. Are you trying to bring me down? Um, to no, no. Uh, the number of three-pointers hit from UNCG from game one to game two went from eight to two. 
the number of field goals Jasmine Sanders hit from game one to game two ah, went from two to eight. I think that's the difference in the games. And UNCG is much more the team that hits two threes. Then well eight, done by correct. you to find the commonality. That's good stuff. But two of 16 from three. Uh, Pernilla Sorensen just kind of went out of her mind on Friday in her first game back after missing like six weeks. She had ankle surgery, which everything I understand about surgery usually keeps you out for much longer than six weeks, but maybe just the uh, arthroscopic procedure. Is that what's uh, usually the less severe one? Arthroscopic, Sounds right uh, to me. You, you, know, you know I know my surgeries. <laughs> so I'm thinking that it was just a non-invasive, you know, maybe clean up some cartilage or uh, I shouldn't go too far from into the medical realm. But point being, obviously it wasn't too bad because she was able to come back and hit four threes. And one of them was absolutely absurd with like two minutes left. It was a tie game, and you thought ETSU, when they put the press on, and Brittany Zell did delineate between the two presses that ETSU used, the 2-2-1, which was not very effective in that first game Friday night. And they went to a 1-2-1-1, and that was the one you saw in the fourth quarter. ETSU tied their most points, scored in a quarter in that fourth on Friday night, 23 Race from behind after scoring only, I think it was 28 in the first three quarters. They scored 23 in that fourth and ended up losing by three. Micaiah Dowdell, chance at the buzzer to tie up, but Pernilla Sorensen hit the big shot. It was 47-47 from the right wing. Shot clock winding down like a 30-footer, and it goes in. But then ETS gets four straight points. It's 51-50, to and then CC Crudup goes into attack mode, and she's a solid player. You know, UNCG doesn't have a lot of scores that they can rely on, but Crudup, Powell and the occasional Sorensen. Khalees Kane, I'm pretty impressed with. She's going to be a quality big in the league for a long time. A six foot three, very, very good rebounder. I think she's got like four games in a row now with double digit rebounds and can score a little bit too. I, I thought it was interesting. She was only averaging like 23 minutes and she played the whole first quarter in the second game. And I think, again, I don't know the team as well as Trina Patterson, but I thought that gassed her for the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. And but she ended up over 10 minutes more than what she normally plays. And I, and I think it showed. And ETSU obviously did a better job with this game. But as a freshman, it's like we talk about Ja'Kai Davis. Man, they have their moments where they can take over a game. Some of that, I think, is skewed by the fact that three of her first four games, she didn't score, only played like ten combined minutes because opportunities just weren't there as much because Jordan Relaford and some others that have missed significant time, um, they were in, Pernell Sorensen as well. Uh, they were in, they were available, um, and Kane, I just don't know if Trina Patterson knew what she was getting as well with Khalees Kane, uh, but she does get more minutes now over these last you know, eight or so games, but it's a good point, you know, uh, Khalees in that second quarter missed a number, and I'm talking Sunday now, that second quarter missed a number of close-in shots, and you look at the difference in the game, 58 to 48, that second quarter was it. UNCG didn't score for over eight minutes in that second quarter. ETSU's defense showed up. Defense has been their calling card the entire year. Hold UNCG to 48. That's their fewest points allowed this season. So defense was big. Turnovers continue to be the story. The press is going to be more prevalent, I think. Brittany Zell talked to me about how they didn't want to show a lot in the non-conference. They bring the press now, and it's obviously had a great effects against very late on Appalachian State. You remember that, where ETSU forced three straight turnovers, almost came from behind in one after being down seven going into the final two minutes. Wofford in that second game on Saturday, I think that was two Saturdays ago now, 79-78 double overtime loss, but the Terriers really, really struggled with the press. And then the fourth quarter against UNCG on Friday, and then Sunday as well, 18 turnovers the Bucks. Um, I think more importantly, 19 points off. They're 123 to 79, or is it 129 to 73? 129 to 73 over the last six games in points off turnovers. They did not outscore a team in points off turnovers the first six games of the year. 
that has flipped a ton with more of the press and ETSU being way more opportunistic than they've previously been. What was interesting was the fact that, and I know the outlier maybe Jasmine Sanders with the seven turnovers, but ETSU playing helter-skelter only had 14 turnovers, which I thought was impressive. And when you play that, you are going to have some moments where you're going to turn it over. But the first four possessions of the game, I thought, carried over from the last of Friday night's game. Four straight turnovers forced to start the game for ETSU. To me, that set the whole tone of the contest. And we've talked about this a lot about, you know, with these two-game series, it could turn into what you see in the NBA or maybe Major League Baseball where there are true series played. And it sometimes the end of a game carries into the next game. And I think it clearly, the end of the game, whether it was bad taste in your mouth from how the, the loss happened, whether it was just confidence going in there, but it clearly carried over into Sunday, and I thought they came out and, and really laid it to UNCG and set the tone. And you hope that that can continue because ETSU now three straight games with double-digit steals, and as we talked about, their third straight game winning points off turnovers and five of their last six. If they can continue to do that and not only get offense from defense there, but the free throw line is starting to come around. There are six straight games at 60% or better after going into that stretch at 57%, which is one of the worst marks in the country. They had absolutely their best day on Sunday against UNCG from the stripe. 20 of 24, 83%. First time that they have reached 20 free throws this season, and you and me talk about this a lot with offenses that are struggling. Defense can help that, and your easiest shots can help that in close and at the free throw line. And the fact you were able to hit 20 of 24. Now, 10 of 12 of that, literally half, was Jasmine Sanders, and she just had an incredible day. I want to talk a little bit more about her. But the fact that 10 of the other 12 went in. You know, Ja'Kaya Davis has been working on driving that middle finger through the basketball at the free throw line so you have that straight over-the-top backspin rather than it coming out a little bit sideways sometimes when she doesn't, kind of rolling her wrist a little bit or letting some of your other fingers control the direction of the ball and how it's leading your hand. That's something Brittany Azell has been working on with her a lot. She goes four for four from the line, entered the day 57%. Uh, Kaya Upton, six of eight from the free throw line. Her jump shot started to come around a little bit and just shooting the ball at the line on Sunday as well. Hit a number of uh, perimeter jumpers, not quite threes, but you know that 15 to 18 foot range. And what they say about her is that consistently, in practice, she is one of the better shooting guards, and then you throw guards in there. Obviously, you're talking jump shooting. You would include your bigs, too. One of the better shooters on the team in practice in terms of percentage. She just gets to the game and I think goes into playmaker mode, right? Lock down your player on the defensive end, try and get steals, set up your teammates. Offensive end, try and drive, find the open player. Goes into point guard mode, doesn't get her shot as much, but she showed this weekend that when she is given a little bit of space, you can't just slack off her. And if teams are watching that, that's going to really help open up the floor for ETSU because jump shooting-wise, coming into this season, Elise Stafford was your top shooter, led the Southern Conference in three-point percentage last year during league play. She has obviously struggled, isn't playing that much. Shania Jackson is someone that can square one up from outside at the four position, that stretch four type player. She is not playing that much. Micaiah Dowdell really struggled this weekend. Just one field goal. I think combined she was 1 of 12. 1 of 12 from the floor and 0 of 7 from outside. She was your top three-point shooter entering the weekend. So I think teams are going to consistently look more and more at these percentages, at the inconsistency of ETSU's offense, and try and just pack it in and give that three. If Kaya Upton can even show that she can hit that 18 or 19 footer, that's not going to be a hard and fast across the board rule that teams are going to be able to follow 
against the Bucks. So I thought some really encouraging things on the offensive end. The totals still aren't there in terms of um, points, right, like the inconsistency that we talked about. But Jasmine Sanders, 28, tied her career high, fourth highest mark in the Southern Conference this year. But she's the only one of the other uh, four that are either tied with her or are ahead of her that has taken that few shots. Every other player that scored 20 or more this year in the Southern Conference has taken 17 or more shots, just 13 for her. She's also inconsistent. We know that. But even if she can give that to you once every you know, three, four games, it doesn't even have to be 28. Give me 20 or more once every three or four games. That's going to be huge in helping the Bucks break out of this, what seems like right now a season-long offensive slump. It really does. Just getting multiple players to double figures was even a struggle even in that game. Kai Upton needed some free throws late to get to double figures. If Sanders can be the, okay, guaranteed 15 a night with, as you say, the occasional 20, 22, 24, great. Can she get to 15 a night? I think that's going to be the issue. If she can get to 15 a night, then who's the next person to step up? I think that's the, the question mark. I don't think it has to be a particular player. Can you get somebody else to get in double figures? And more importantly, can you get two people to get into double figures? So if you can get 15 from Sanders, let's say, Kaya Upton or Carly Hooks can get you 10, then maybe Davis or Dowdell or Stafford. I mean, there's enough people there that can get to double figures on whatever game it is. But I think it's going to have to go with the only score right now that I feel confident with if you said pick a leading score that will lead the team every game rest of the year, I think I'd feel confident saying Sanders. Now, is that going to be true? Probably not. Somebody's going to outscore at some point, right? We've seen Dowdell throw 20. We know Stafford can throw. You know, so somebody's going to outscore. But if I was to say right now I had to pick a horse to score, I would say Sanders. So my next question is who are the next two or three players on any given game that can help her out because they need – somebody to take the reins and say, I'm going to score 15 a night, and then a couple others to say, okay, I'll help you this night. The one thing that Carly really hasn't done yet this year is have that efficient game. She missed a couple of threes bad early on, ended up three for 13 on Sunday, but did some good things, right? Had seven points, you know, a couple rebounds, a couple of steals. Uh, she is, I think, the fastest player in the Southern Conference. Seeing her in the open floor, uh, it, it is a marvel when she wants to push the pace. She just blows past entire teams. So, I think Carly, as a freshman, someone that's still trying to figure out what shots she should and should not take, and all but one game this year she's taken more shots than she's had points. That's going to have to change efficiency-wise for ETSU if she is going to be one of your top three or four scorers to be able to have success on the offensive end. Amani Williams isn't someone that you're going to be able to rely on for offense right now. Plenty of other things we can rely on her for, but not offense. Kaya Upton, you know, it kind of comes and goes with her in terms of that confidence shooting from the field. Uh, Makaya, you know, down this weekend. She had been very consistent before this weekend. Had 20 points against Wofford last Saturday, but then hits kind of a valley here. And then Shania and Elise, we talked about, haven't been playing that much. Jakaya, um, 12 rebounds. Great day for her. That's the most rebounds any Buccaneer has had in a game this season. First to double figures in rebounds, Jakaya Davis. Also had six points, but just one of five from the field. It's interesting. Somebody that's around the program asked me the other day, who do you think the best player is on this team? What an interesting question. I, I don't know. Because if you were to say Jasmine Sanders is going to lead the Bucks in scoring every game the rest of the year, I'd say there's no chance. If you said who's going to average the most points per game the rest of the year, I'd say it's Jasmine Sanders. And the delineation there is consistency versus big blow-up games and then games like Jasmine had on Friday where she is 2 of 14. The consistency just isn't there. Brittany Zell knows it. She's talked to me about it in terms of 
that consistency post-game, pre-game. She just doesn't know who's going to bring it on a certain day. And defenses are part of that, right? They can take certain things away, put you in uncomfortable positions, and then who steps up? So it's all very interesting. And I think the one unfortunate thing that came out of this weekend, um, the big unfortunate thing for me, was Amaya Adams. And she's going to be out, it sounds like, four to six weeks with a high ankle sprain, kind of an ugly injury. I think it was in that fourth quarter, late on in the game. Late fourth quarter. Yeah. And it didn't. It she was one of your most consistent players. Well, and – Anytime somebody goes down immediately, normally with a verbal, I don't want to call it a cry, a yell, some sort of, you know, for somebody who generally isn't dramatic and doesn't do whatever, like it's always pause for concern. And I went to the analogy doing the TV Sunday of, you know, I've been a part of that when Cameron Gibson's first guy came to my mind because that happened right in front of me and to hear sort of the – the noise of pain or knowing something went wrong as he went down. The difference was at least Adams, and and it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one hurt, but it was sort of at the lower leg towards the ankle as opposed to a knee, and so there's still, but yes, having her out four to six weeks, and that's you know, sometimes that's aggressive getting them back that early. It may be later than that. So, you know, and again, sometimes it's not as bad. After the swelling goes down, sometimes it's not as bad, but normally that's a, you know, that's, that's about a six-week process more than it is a four-week process. So we'll see, you know, how that goes. And that was certainly disappointing for Coach Giselle because Adams does so many things for her. And I know she keeps using the Swiss Army knife. But defensively, you know, she can guard so many different positions. And then offensively, she can check in and she knows different positions. So what is she doing on different sets as the two, the three, or the four? She knows all that. So I think that just hurts the versatility for Coach Ezell um, moving forward. Plus, I think she's a calming factor in that huddle. Courtney Moore and Abby Carrington are also going to be out for, it sounds like, this coming week. Moore is a bit more up in the air because she is still having those concussion symptoms. Can't be in protocol until you're at zero on a scale of like zero to 128. There's some concussion chart, and 128 seems like an arbitrary number, but point being, she was not at zero as of this past weekend. And you can't go into protocol until you are there. So, her status up in the air for this coming weekend. Abby Carrington sounds like she is going to miss this week. She's got a knee injury, something that could have been much worse that was suffered in practice, but thankfully um, she's going to you know, work on that and getting back, and hopefully you know, first week of February, second week of February, she'll be available. But, yeah, not having Amaya Adams, that's going to be difficult because I think you looked at players that gave you what you expect them to give you on a day-to-day basis, and she's right at the top of the list for me. Um, Amani Williams, but she – has some freshman days like she did on Sunday where she doesn't score and isn't that involved in the game. Kaya Upton, you don't expect her to score, so when she does give you you know, 10 points, that's a big plus. Um, always going to run the four, so maybe Kaya's right up there too, but um, then you look down the list, and there's just not that day-in, day-out presence, so very unfortunate there. We will break down Western Carolina either Thursday or Friday. We'll also do PTS Men's Basketball Citadel. Um, speaking of men's basketball. And we'll do Stock Up, Stock Report. SoCon report after this time out to hear words. Tanev Sakik on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Enjoy the new year with more games, more chances to win, and even more fun from the Tennessee Lottery. And you can play any way you like. Play quick and win big with instant games. Or try drawing-style games that pack a big money punch. So don't drop the ball. Make a resolution to put a little more cash and a whole lot of fun in your pocket today with the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Break down. 
commandos and the sidekick. We have a mission. Grab it on, here we go. I love that. Yeah, you do. Men's basketball around the Southern Conference. Whose stock is up? Whose stock is down? Well, pretty simple. Let's, I mean, we could do like two minutes. But ETSU you know is up. We're going to go for like 15 or 20 minutes on this because we always do. People whose stock are down. Stanford, okay. Chattanooga, and whoever the other team is. Who else got Furman? Although, allegedly. allegedly. That's right. They may, they may have had a bad batch of tests and may be back. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, in terms of teams that are on the court, I now count, by the way, eight of the ten programs that have had COVID around the league since November 25th. That's two months. And I think the only ones that have not, let me read off the ones that have. Citadel, VMI, Western Carolina, ETSU, Mercer, Sanford, Furman, Chattanooga. If Furman's tests are not false positives. Currently, I do not see a game scheduled for them on Wednesday. And I do not see anything scheduled for them on Saturday either. And UNCG was supposed to play for them. I'm really disappointed that that game was not able to take place on Monday night. I was really excited to see how Furman was going to bounce back after their uh, after their loss. Would it be three in a row? Because two losses, back-to-back losses. That's right. And then UNCG, four wins in a row going into that game. They're five and two, but they really hadn't played a whole lot in taking that step up to a Furman who was going to be out for blood after a couple of losses. What was going to happen there, and we didn't get it. Uh, there was also a game I had because there was not a lot going on on Monday night. That was a game I had circled to make sure if I didn't watch it Monday, first thing uh, in the office Tuesday, I was going to watch the entirety of the game. So very disappointed, uh, but UNCG is going to find a way to make up a game. They lost a game with Mercer back on January 9th. They are able to make that game up uh, coming up on Wednesday. I am curious for – I don't know who Furman – because they've already switched some of the schedules. I don't know who Furman had scheduled. Wednesday, and if they can even get that, or if they had Sanford on the board that was already missing. So I'm not sure. But what I do know is Furman, I think their players would have probably probably liked to have got back on the court because it was at home. And they're very good at home. Can I tell you how happy I am that we didn't do this show yesterday? Yes, before all this broke. And Firstly, because we would have looked completely stupid. Because everything we would have talked about would not have mattered because of these two programs that got COVID. We would have broken down. You would have had to subtweet only kidding on the thing. And then we would have talked some Furman UNCG in this segment. I was also going to, I'm glad I didn't get to this on Saturday. And, again, the next game that Furman has scheduled is February 3rd against Sanford. So right now we can only assume that those tests were legit, right, and they were not false positive and that they will be out. as, As of right this second, I think we're still going with they are out. But I think they they had the rare positives, then ran the retest, got a lot of negatives, and so I'm sure they're getting the, the you know, those, whatever, the, the PCRs and sending them off and getting a lab just to make sure, again, precaution, obviously, everyone's fine Absolutely. with that. So, uh, they right this second as we record the show on a Tuesday, they're out, but if the game were to come back around, they weren't, they weren't going to schedule Wednesday anyways. They, they just the way I guess it worked out, but they were going to play Chattanooga on Saturday. So they did have a Chattanooga game Saturday, but Chattanooga shut down, so right. I, don't, I don't even think they would have it now. I'm not even, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. Even if they are, is there anybody else available to play? And the problem is they've already played ETSU twice. 
I think UNCG already has, obviously, the game scheduled against Mercer. And then I think they host VMI, so you can't get that game in. They can't play us anymore. So I don't, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. They're just going to have to sit there regardless. The false positive is going to cost them one game regardless, uh, but it may not have cost them as much to think because they're ahead of game Tennessee. I was going to go with on Saturday on ESPN Plus broadcast and on this show yesterday before Furman allegedly got COVID on a Bob Ritchie tangent about maybe his mindset on this whole thing is the right one. I talked to him on Thursday before – the game against CTSU, and he said, this is how we approach COVID. You have five games in a week, every week. You have your two game days and your three tests. And I thought about that, and I was like, man, I look around the league and see, and keep in mind, COVID kind of seems like a coin toss, right? Like, you could be doing all the right things and still get it. Uh, you can go out and party with your buddies, your teammates, whatever, on a Saturday night, and everybody's fine. I don't have any documented evidence of that, but you get what I'm saying, using that as an example. But I thought that that was a pretty brilliant philosophy because it incentivizes and motivates and tries to put a level of competition and responsibility onto the student-athlete. And if you're saying that that's as big as a game day and guys are truly brought into your program and they have uh, followed you down you know, every rabbit hole that you go into, and it certainly seems like that the players at Furman have with Bob Ritchie, in his three-plus seasons there now. He's set all kinds of records in his short time there, and I'm quite sure that he believes this year that he will check that last thing off the list that he needs to do at Furman, which would be a regular season and postseason conference championship. A couple of losses, obviously not in the same position they were last week at this time, but still, I'm sure the belief is still there. But they were one of the teams, one of the four going into yesterday, that had not had COVID the list obviously growing and growing and growing and it may prove to be that they still do not have COVID unfortunate situation because they've kind of found themselves if they don't have it as the odd team out here right because they were going to take on UNCG false positive that game canceled and then if it is a false positive I always have to put that disclaimer in and then like you said Saturday you're supposed to take on Chattanooga and they have COVID so if they do if they don't I do think it's a brilliant strategy by Bob Ritchie to say look yeah, you're going to play those two games, but without your other three, and I quote, game days, which are the tests, you're not going to be able to participate in your two real game days. So that's why you say five, right? Because one is just as important as the other. You cannot have one without the other. And, again, not knowing the actual situation there in terms of what is going to end up being the case, if it's a false positive or real positive, I'm still probably happy that I didn't go with that, although I'm still going to say it now just in case so I can still claim brilliance. And the interesting part of that, too, is for the players, you think about a, a real academic, if we go that route, you kind of know, for the most part, you're, if you're prepared for the test or not. I feel like this is the one where you walk in, like you wake up that morning, forgot you had a test, so you sat down, <laughs> and the teacher says, professor says, all right, here's the test, here's your 20 questions, whatever, and you're sitting there going, oh, boy. And then you have to wait that grueling, like, three days, two days to get your test result back to see if you – I feel like it's that, but it's every other day that that's what they're doing. Okay, it's like, I, I think I did okay, you know, I, I did what I was supposed to, but I don't know. You know, did did I come into contact with somebody else? I mean, obviously ETSU had a little bit of concern, too, because they would have just played it. If they, ate, they had eight positives, you know – test ETSU, they're going to go through their tests, they're going to do whatever, would, would that cause anything? But, you know, right now what the league needs to hope is that there was the weird batch that was incorrect, 
they're going to be able to play. Yes, it stinks they don't get the UNCG game, and they didn't have a Wednesday game scheduled already because of it being canceled, and they'll just have to wait till Saturday to play. So it'll be interesting to see. Originally, we did this segment because we wanted to keep up with health around the league, how injuries and absences and additions were affecting teams. And you look now, and a lot of the league has gotten healthy outside of COVID. Natalie Alvarez from Mercer is back and healthy, and the Bears are kind of rolling. Western Carolina has gotten Cam Gibson back. Corey Hightower, of course, has come off the blanket waiver, and he's playing. Casey Hankton, um, Darius Banks, all playing across the league after being cleared by the NCAA waiver or coming back from injuries. The only guy, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only guy that still stands out in terms of being of major consequence to the title race or to a team's, I think, aptitude when they step onto the court is Messiah Jones right now. Poor Walker. That's the only one I looked across the league and crossed my T's down in my eyes, I think. Yeah, UNCG got a couple um, of those guys back that, that were out. Furman, who had Jalen Pugh and a couple guys, they were back. So, yes, the only one um, that I think is still out is Messiah Jones that saw quality minutes that would expect to be a contributor. Their next five, at Citadel, home to Mercer, home to VMI, at Furman, home to Chad. I, I looked at this schedule and broke it down meticulously over the last couple of days to, with the hope, because we have a board in our office, and, you know, us being ETSU homers, we want ETSU to win the conference title, right? How is Wofford going to fall apart? Because I have not been a believer in Wofford. Evidence is mounting against me, right? I mean, there's nothing to not believe in Wofford about at this point in the season. I mean, they've passed pretty much all the tests that they have had in SOCON play and look back to the non-conference and you know, it was a bit up and down, but nothing glaring where you'd say, okay, well. Just another solid Wofford right, team. That's it, exactly what it is. Unspectacular, but yes, solid. And so I was going to try and say, oh, they're going to lose four of their next five and drop to the middle of the pack. But I keep trying to find ways to poke holes in what they're doing, and I just haven't been able to find it. And they're doing it without Messiah Jones. Right, and you know, in the first game was the the Mercer game on ESPNU. Right, Alvarez didn't play. Murphy was typical Murphy. Then the next game was Samford at home. They were able to score ninety four points and win. Then they took the UNCG loss. ETSU got postponed. They go right back up there and avenge the loss on the road. Those two teams went on each other's home floor, but that was a three point win. Then the game winner by Storm Murphy at VMI to win by two. And then here's what's scary. Then they rattled off some no doubt about it last two games. At Chattanooga, one healthy, and West Carolina, one healthy. So to me, that's scary because they had all these close kind of, you know, I mean, Sanford was 10, but still, the way Sanford plays, you can make up 10 points easy. So there were all these nip and tuck and one possession, two possession games, and then all of a sudden now it seems like they're they're starting to flex a little bit on the rest of the league. So we'll, we'll see because – the Citadel game would be interesting on the road, but after that, I think Mercer's got it scheduled. VMI's got it scheduled, uh, or circled, I should say, on the schedule because of the way those two teams lost. One, no Alvarez for Mercer. I'm sure they would like another shot. And then two, VMI, you know, kind of had them where they wanted them, and, and Murphy just, give them credit, hit a tough shot for three to win the game. So I think it's impressive uh, what Wofford has done. If they win those three, then they get the big game at at Furman. Of course, I think that's going to be played as of now. That's still going to be at the Well or whatever that thing's called downtown, the Bond Secure Center. But if it goes to campus, I think a huge advantage for Furman in that contest. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. But it is, if they rattle off these next three going into that, you know, it's going to be hard 
to make an argument that Wofford isn't for real. One final point on them. I can't help but, and I always try and do this, because close games can oftentimes go one way or another, and it's not to say that the winning team doesn't deserve the victory, but you look back at the Richmond game and the South Florida game for Wofford, you lose by a combined seven. Richmond was 19th in the country at the time, and you lose to South Florida 58-56. to 56. If you win one or both of those, I can't help but wonder what my attitude and my approach to trying to gauge where Wofford is this year would change because then you'd look and say, okay, well, the loss to Texas A&M, sure, but then that would be their only non-conference loss. And then you'd have UNCG versus UNCG, which I still think UNCG is a front-runner to win this league um, and that loss. And that would be it if you had won both those games. And all of a sudden, Wofford looks like, I don't want to say a top 25 team, but certainly a top five mid-major team at that point, in my opinion, if you pull those upsets. Um, so uh, trying to reel myself back in after saying, well, look at but looking at the schedule and saying there really isn't a bad loss on it right now across the board. No, I, I mean, the Richmond, South Florida's playing really good. I think A&M's never to scoff at. UNCG's a typical in the top four of the SOCON, which the top four in SOCON's better than most top four. So – no, I, I agree, and especially the way they – again, I'm going back to the way they've won a couple of those last games where it seems like they're starting to hit a stride with a man down. Real quick, I think that Mercer and UNCG is going to be really good tomorrow night, and then mercer Wofford. I mean, the Bears are right in the midst of it right now, and I think they're a team that's charging hard, a team that you and I both believed in preseason and remembering our thoughts on them. I think those are both going to be really competitive games. Especially if Mercer's going to get back into the sort of the league hunt and talk about considering a slow start to the league. I totally agree. Those – the games to watch as far as Wednesday goes. Let's step aside. Oh, no, we don't step aside. Let's just yeah, hear one. I got we'll right. This one the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have reportedly agreed to terms with free agent wide receiver Play Antonio Brown. I'm waiting on next week. The Warriors' Clay Thompson is out for the season again. This time it's a torn Achilles. This one loses 27-17 to an 0-5. Now 1-6. And State, this is a lifeless organization. We do need to do a football preseason. Jay told me the turkey wasn't enough on Thanksgiving. He went and got two stops and got brownie to watch it down. That does sound good. Just disgusting. Now you gotta do that. Very hungry. It is lunchtime. Let's get through this so I can go eat with some honey mustard. I want to embarrass you about your Buffalo Bills prediction. Was not that bad. Uh, I mean, the final score was, you know, 14. 287, two touchdowns, and a pick for Josh Allen. I wish you could see his first quarter stats, though. 350-plus was your prediction for him. 100-plus for Stephon Diggs, 6 for 77 for him. And you said Buffalo would win. Those were two separate predictions. You were trying to sneak in the extra prediction because I had one extra early, but you blew it. Yeah, you I, lost both of those. Yeah. And what stunk was the 41 yards in the first quarter passing for Josh Allen. That, that got me behind the eight ball to start with. So, all right, take the loss. I had the Bucks over the Packers. I am the smartest man alive! That got me a win, too, in a separate thing. Too bad that's not this thing. I know. So, I'm 1-0 there. You're 0-2 there. But you made up for it. I was very impressed by this prediction. I'm not going to lie to you. It was minus 10 second chance points down at Furman. You said plus 10. And this is where I get bitter because 
you seem to get all the close ones, and I don't. And there were how many shots on that final possession after a miss for Furman? Okay, with so the game already there were decided? four total, which meant there were three offensive rebounds. And in the last make one of eight them, seconds, make one of them. They had shots to get a second chance bucket. Get down to eight or seven would have, second chance points. Wouldn't have mattered in the game, yeah. but would have mattered to you emotionally. Uh, I am. They missed them all, and I am smart. <laughs> you are not. Genius. I don't believe that. I can't believe I actually hit the button because that just to me is dumb blind luck. Actually, though, pretty brilliant. Because even if it's eight or seven, that's still a 17-point swing. You saw that coming, so I do have to give you some credit there. But it is frustrating that the Paladins could not get that done to at least help me out a little bit. I said two players, 20-plus points. How many points did I come up shy of that? Just three. Ladarius Brewer, 17. Demario Monsanto, 22. I mean, right on the right track. They averaged 19 and a half for the two of them. Right there, right? Knocking on the doorstep. I mean, what do you want from me? How much better can I get at these bowl predictions without getting more than one week right? Unbelievable. You had three or more double-figure scores for ETSU women's basketball. In, in both games. In both games. And I had two double-digit wins for ETSU women's basketball in both games. I got one of those. Did not get the second, though, unfortunately, as it was a defensive battle in both of those contests. ETSU coming out with one, coming up short in the other, narrowly, 56 to 53. But Hideout Ells had like three or four shots or chances on final possessions this year. The one at Davidson, remember, that was like a six-point or a five-point game. She dribbled off her foot, just blind, unlocked for her. Then against Appalachian State and Brooks Gym, a charge over in the corner, and then she missed the three again. She's a solid player, man. She's had some chances late and just hasn't been able to convert. Season may look a lot different. We got will preview. You got nothing, you got nothing. Well, I was going well, to say we're going to preview because we're running out of time here. We got a good preview fair. next show. Men's basketball Citadel, the double uh, dip with Western Carolina inside Brooks Gym. We'll go over bold predictions. And we'll try to be better. Although we each got four one. Four. Can can we be better if we four each get four. one in the same week? I don't think so. All right, Santa Sidekick, back with you. Back in your short network. Cowboy up, go play ball.